Hello. It's good to have you with us. I'm going to pray and then we'll go straight into this morning's uh, message. Father, we thank you that we can gather together in your name uh, and uh, be together to worship you, to exalt you. But Lord, I also pray that this morning as we look at your word, that you would uh, challenge our hearts, bring freedom and passion, that we would not only live for you, but we would live for you in reaching others for you as well. Uh, And this morning, Lord, that our hearts would be wide open to receive from you in Jesus' name. Amen. Fantastic. Well, this morning we're going to be starting uh, a, a, a different um, series, kind of a short series. We're going to look at the book of Titus. And um, uh, so I'm going to do a little bit of an intro, then look at something this morning is from Titus. Uh, so if you want to start reading through Titus, you can. And not this morning, of course, not right now. Wait until you get home. It's only three chapters long, it's not a very long book. Um, and it's surprisingly how few people I can find anywhere in the world that have actually preached on Titus. So um, that's quite an interesting uh, fact. But uh, anyway, so um, it's a short one, but there's so much actually that's packed into the book of Titus. So we're going to look at that this morning. Titus, just some background, he was one of Paul's team. We don't hear anything about Titus at all the whole way through the book of Acts where he, he's not mentioned at all. I don't know if that's because Luke didn't like him or didn't think it was necessary. We don't know. But anyway, he was a member of Paul's team. He uh, isn't mentioned through Acts, but we see him mentioned again, I think it's about 13 or 14 times through the New Testament, uh, pertaining to work into the church in Ephesus, in Corinth, in Galatia. Paul leaves him in Crete, and which is where he is when he writes this letter to him. He then goes on to Nicopolis, or whatever, however you pronounce that, and Dalmatia, and a number of other things that he does. But what we see is that he is a Gentile believer, and Paul clearly thought he was a guy who actually was a capable and resourceful leader in the kingdom of God and in the, the, the early church. And so that's roughly, very briefly, who he is. We don't really need to know huge amounts about anybody, really, in Scripture except Jesus. Everybody else is just there because they're examples. But um, he is in Crete. He's on the island of Crete. Now, Crete is a fairly large island, quite significant, but... Even according to Roman standards, which were pretty low, um, they were morally despicable. And if you think the Romans were bad, the Cretans were worse. And uh, so they were a Greek island that had been taken over by the Romans. Their standards of morals and um, laziness and lies were known all over the world. And uh, they were not a very good uh, group of people. And we see in Acts, if you want to read in Acts 27 and 28, when Paul was on his way uh, as a prisoner to Rome, one of the reasons why they were shipwrecked is because the guy didn't want to stop in Crete. Even though Paul said to him, look, we should stop here. He didn't want, he wanted to push through. And then that's how much the Romans didn't really like being in Crete because of all the nonsense that went on. And Paul writes to him in Crete. He's left Titus in Crete and he writes to him and asks him to do a number of different things with regard to leadership and then teaches on uh, what it means to be living as biblical life-giving believers in, in, in the world that we live in. He instructs him about uh, bringing correction to those who are adding to the gospel or those who are living in a way that is different from how we should. And we're going to look at all of those things. But this week, we're actually going to jump to the middle of the book. And I'm going to start in the middle of the book. And I'll tell you why is this, is that the letters of the New Testament are written as letters. 
And we should actually sit and read them in their entirety so we get the whole picture of what the person was saying, what God's saying through the letter. And we run the risk if we, and it's good that we go through precept by precept, scripture by scripture, as study the word, but we need to have an overview. If we don't, we run the risk of, as we study the small bits, small bits, without seeing the big picture, we can go off on a tangent or we can feel the weight and burden of something that is not there. Make sense? Yes. So we need to be able to read Scripture and take it in context. That's why I encourage you, when, and I've, I've say, said this often, if you are studying the Word, which we should all be doing, if you, I'm systematically going through a book, I'd encourage you to read the whole book, then go back and study it so that you have an overview, then you can look at it in context. And so that's all we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at um, the book of Titus, but we're going to start halfway through so that we actually remember the, the whole and have the right foundation. And so we're going to start with Titus chapter 2, uh, verse th- uh, 11, and f- 11 to 14. And uh, it's in the middle of Paul's instructions to him about how we to live biblically following after the things of God. But it's all about God's grace. And so we're going to look this morning at the grace of God. Because if we miss this, if we miss what it means to understand and live in the supernatural power of the, of the grace of God, then we can take all these other things that he says before about to do this and do that in the wrong context and the things after in the same way. And so we need to have this understanding so that we don't live in the bondage of, of, of the law or the weightiness of self-righteousness or, or, or the works that we try and do. Because if I had to just stand up this morning and say and preach and say, this is how we to live, I can guarantee most of us will probably think, oh, it's too much to carry. But when we understand the the principle of grace, and I think that's why Paul puts it in the middle of the letter, because he's already said a whole lot, says this, and then carries on. That if you read the whole thing in one sitting, you'd see that. And so this morning, as we're going to go and dissect in the weeks ahead, we're going to read from there. So Titus chapter 2, verse 11 says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and the worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up, to, up for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for, us, purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. We also jump across to Romans. Romans chapter 6, uh, sorry, chapter 5, verse 6 to 10, it says this. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Jesus Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for the righteous man, though a good man, some might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us. That while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. Then if you jump down to verse 15. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the man, if many died by the trespass of one man, speaking of Adam, how much more did God's grace and gift that comes by that grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to many? Again, the gift of God is not like 
the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? So here we have this picture that while we were still sinners... And for us, so we read that, while we are still sinners, Jesus died for us. We know that. But actually, when you think of it, Jesus died for us before we were even born. So before we even existed in this world, Jesus had already paid the price and died for the sin that we were going to be born into and the sin that we were going to commit. He's already done that. On the cross, Jesus paid that price. So when we read that while we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, before we were even born, Jesus died on our behalf and paid the price for us. And just as sin came through one man who is Adam to also righteousness, which is our right standing before God and declared holy, comes through one man, which is Jesus Christ. And that's all because of God's love, God's grace, and God's mercy. Jesus chose to do that on our behalf, for us. All our sin and the debt that we owed, he took all of that and the consequences of that. And that meant that all of those things were put on him, which meant He chose to not only carry those, but the consequences of those and the punishment for that, which he stood before and faced the full wrath of God on our behalf. An incredible, incredible truth. He's punished on the cross, put to death. He stood and he took all of that weight of our sin and our guilt, that which is inherent to man, that which we had done, that we were going to do. He carried it all on himself and paid the price by his own choice, so that you and I, when we respond and receive him, don't have to. That is an incredible, incredible truth. And it's there for every single person who chooses to believe and receive that gift of salvation and grace. You see, when we finally come to realize that there is a standard of righteousness and holiness for humanity. Everybody. Yet when we come to that point of understanding that and that there is nothing that any of us can do to meet that. And that there's a debt that is owed because of that sinful nature of man. When we come to that point of realizing that we cannot do that and the only way we can actually live free from that, live reconciled to God, is by accepting Jesus. Not by our own works, not by our own good behavior, not by being born into the right family or not believing something else and so therefore by default, but by realizing that actually you and I can do nothing to pay for the sin and the debt that is owed except believe in Jesus, then we realize that we need a Savior. We need to be saved from all those things. And the only Savior, the only Savior, is Jesus Christ. 
There is no other way to God. There is no other way to be reconciled to God of all creation. Uh, this morning, I think we sang, you are a mighty God. And I get the words of the song, but I think, and sometimes I think we have to say, you are the mighty God. Not one of many. He is the only. And the only way to God is through Jesus Christ. And he is the only one who has paid the price and carried the debt for us. Only Jesus. And it's only when we turn to him by faith and accept that it is him who has done it all and receive from him that gift of salvation that we can freely come before God. It's only when we choose to do that. And you see, when we believe in him and have faith in him and turn to him and put our lives in his hands, and accept that gift of salvation, the transformation of our lives is so great that the Bible actually calls it being born again. Not just changed, but being born again. Because all of that is washed away. And that is by grace, through faith in Jesus. And that's what Paul's saying to Titus and to us, is that it is by grace through faith in Jesus, that we are saved. Not because we've done anything, because we already realize that there's nothing we can do that can pay that price. There's nothing that we do that can make us deserving of God's love, acceptance, mercy, forgiveness. Nothing. It is only through Jesus And because he chose to do that, we simply need to surrender fully to him. It's a free gift, and that free gift means that we have forgiveness and we're justified. So uh, another way that you can think of justification is that we are declared holy. It's as just as if I'd never sinned. That's how I always just remember it. I'm justified just as if I'd never sinned because that is what happens when we believe and receive our salvation in Jesus. So there's a pattern in the Old Testament that points to this, which is really helpful for us to understand. And that is this, is that there, when the nation of Israel were about to come out of Egypt, remember the, the, all the plagues that God inflicted on Egypt, and then the final one was the Passover. Remember, they were told to gather in their homes, sacrifice a lamb, and paint on the door frames the, the blood of the lamb, and that the angel of death would pass by, and, and when it saw the blood on the door frames would pass by, and those who were inside would be protected and would not die the firstborn, and those who weren't would face death. Remember that? That's a picture of what Jesus has done. In that he is known as the Passover lamb. And the door frames were painted on the outside and everybody was painted, uh, everybody wasn't painted, everybody was on the inside of the house. And as the angel of death passed, he didn't look to see who the people were. He looked to see if there was blood on the door frame. And those who are in Christ Jesus are saved. Now, in the Old Testament, then goes on with the, 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 um, the giving of the law. There were sacrificial things that had to happen. And if someone, who, if someone sinned, they had to what? They had to sacrifice a lamb. And what would happen is they'd bring it to the priest. And just because a lamb isn't as uh, valuable as a human, we ha- that had to be done time and time again because it couldn't take the, 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 the full weight of that, that debt that was owed. 
But every time the person would bring the lamb, they would bring a lamb that, and they would present it to the priest, and the priest would inspect the lamb to see if the lamb was perfect, because only the perfect lamb was allowed to be sacrificed. And then if the lamb was acceptable, then they would sacrifice the lamb, and for that period of time the man's sin was forgiven until they had to do it again. And so that's a pattern of what Jesus did. And here's the incredible thing, that Jesus is the Lamb of God who was sacrificed for us. And just as the priest didn't inspect the man bringing the Lamb, he inspected the Lamb for perfection. In the same way, when we come to God, though we are the ones who have sinned, God doesn't look at us for perfection. He looks at Jesus for perfection. Because we're not the ones who paid the price. We're not the ones who've died on the cross. Jesus is. <coughs> so that's an incredibly powerful picture. We see in the Old Testament. Remember that. That when you come to God as a child of God, covered in the blood of Jesus. We can sometimes think of that and think, well, we covered in the blood of Jesus because we use the terminology. And so then we see that and we, we have this image sometimes, or certainly I think sometimes we do. We come before God and we think, we understand we covered in the blood of Jesus and we, we look as if God's still inspecting us. But we're not the lamb that was the sacrifice. Jesus is. God looks at the Son, the perfect Lamb, and sees that He is perfect. There is no sin in Him. Yet on Him and through Him, He carried the sin of the world and paid our price so that as we surrender to Him, we are now clothed in Him. So when God looks at us, He doesn't inspect us. He inspects the sacrifice. And because of Jesus, we are then acceptable. That's by the grace of God. That's the incredible truth of this grace of God that we start off our lives in salvation as children of God. Because we are justified as if we had never sinned. He forgets our sinners and remembers it no more. Removes as far as the east is from the west. When we come to him in salvation, we are made new. We are born again. Because God in his mercy and his grace decided that he would look at his son who, who in his mercy and grace took on our sin and died in our behalf so that we could live righteous before God. God doesn't look at the believer who sinned but looks at the sacrifice. Like the priest didn't look at the Israelite who bought the sacrifice. He looked at the sacrifice. Like the angel of death didn't look at the people inside the house, but looked for the blood on the door of the house. And those who were inside were protected. The same is true for you and I. It's not by our deeds or our good behavior or anything else that we are saved, but by the blood of Jesus that was poured out on our behalf, the perfect sacrifice for us who are imperfect. That is the grace of God. The love of God that showed us that while we were still sinners, He died for us. That before we were even born, He paid that price so that we can live, when we receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we can live forgiven, accepted, loved, blessed, 
in his presence free to come before him because not of anything we've done, but because he looks at his son and not our sin. And our sin is forgiven because his son paid the price. That should bring us all to a place of freedom and joy. But that's only part of what Paul's speaking of here. Because by the grace of God, we are saved. Not by our own works, but by grace. But that same gospel message of grace that shows us that God himself justified us through Jesus Christ is the same grace that through God's power and working in us also sanctifies us. So justification is a declaration as if you have never sinned, that you, have, that you are perfect and acceptable in His sight. Sanctification is then the working that we become more holy. In other words, our lives change and are transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. You see, in verse 12 of 2 Titus, it's a, Titus 2, it says, His grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and all those things, so that we live self-controlled and upright lives. Not only do we receive grace to be saved, but we also receive grace to live. Not only do we receive grace to be saved and come before God our Father, but we also receive grace so that we can live for Him, through Him, and in Him. It's by His grace that He saves us, And it's by His grace that He strengthens and empowers us and enables us to to live according to His way. That's why in the middle of this book where Paul speaks about putting leaders in and don't do this and live like this and teach this, and he says, remember this, that you are saved and in Christ Jesus by the grace of God, not by anything that you've done but by the grace of God. And that same grace that saves you is the same grace that empowers you to live like He has for us to live. Why? Because that's in keeping with who we are as a new creation born again in Him. And God doesn't have to, didn't have to save us. He chose in His grace to save us. God doesn't have to enable us and empower us, but He chooses because of His grace and His mercy to enable and empower us to live for Him. That's why we know that at the cross, sin and death were defeated, and the power of sin was taken away, and we can live in that freedom and the strength that it comes from the grace of God working in and through us. You see, it's the grace of God that strengthens Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, find grace to help you in your time of need. Grace to help you in your time of need. Hebrews 13, 9, that we are strengthened by grace. James 4, 6 says that he opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's grace to live. That's grace to empower. It's the grace that we see worked through ourselves. It's the grace that, to save that is worked through Jesus. It's the grace to live that is worked through the Holy Spirit. Just an interesting sight. In the Mount Sinai, when the, when the law came, and remember when Moses came down and they were, they, were, um, uh, they were worshiping the golden calf and they were disobedient and doing all those things, and what happened? God spoke, God judged, and 3,000 were killed. 
when the law came. And the law is good because the law points out to the fact that actually we can do nothing ourselves. But it leads us to that place of salvation and grace and receiving that from Jesus. The day of Pentecost, when Jesus had died on the, th- on, on the cross, and the Holy Spirit came, though, because Jesus said to them, wait for the empowering of my spirit, so that, uh, that it is through the Spirit of God in us that we're empowered to live with grace. Wait until the Holy Spirit comes on you, and then you'll be my witnesses. And so there we have, in, in the New Testament, we have the cross of Jesus, where our pro- the debt has been paid, and the Holy Spirit comes, and the grace of God is poured out, and 3,000 are added. 3,000 are saved. And they can live in the power of God, in the grace of God. So why is it important? I think it's important because of this. Because many of us understand that we are saved by grace. Hopefully every believer will understand that. (coughs) But too often we only understand that. And we understand that there needs to be spiritual disciplines and everything else. And we kind of live in this place where we are saved by grace. But then in order to remain living God, we are living in a victorious life in Him. Then we add all these other things on. It's like, I have to do this. I have to do that. Which we, technically we don't have to. But when we understand that the grace of God comes and brings freedom, the grace of God comes and brings life, the grace of God also comes and brings us strength and the ability to live out our lives as he's called us to live, then by grace we choose to live in those things. And this is the incredible thing which is sometimes quite hard for us to understand that because of the grace of God, (coughs) we don't have to do anything else to please him. We don't have to, you don't have to read the Bible in order to be saved. You do in order to get to know God more, in order to live godly life. That, that's what helps. But if we think, well, now that I'm saved, now I have to do this, and I have to do that, and I have to, that's, you don't have to. But why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you spend time praying? Because praying is talking to the one who saved you by his grace and mercy. Why wouldn't you read the scriptures and devour them and study them so that it it reveals to you more and more of who he is, the one who has saved you and leads you and empowers you? Why wouldn't we do all of those things? Why wouldn't we do everything? Not because we feel we have to, but because why wouldn't we? Because God has poured out his love and we now restored in a relationship with him. And that's how we to live. Not empowered by our own strength and self-righteousness, but empowered by the Holy Spirit and through his grace. See, sometimes I think we can live with this and hear what I'm saying here. This thing that we, we, we owe God everything. And that's, technically it's true, but it's also not. We might owe God everything in that we can't do it ourselves, and so he's done it. So I get the English language for that. But we're not indebted to God. Yet some, if we were indebted to God, then Jesus didn't pay for our debt. If we, see, I understand the, the thinking that, or, 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 or the words of, of, of the heart attitude of, God, I owe you everything. Because without you, I can do nothing. In my life, I'm saved because of you. I get that. 
But if we allow that to cement itself in our thinking, we can live thinking, well, we saved by grace, but now we owe the debt to him for what he's done for us. Where in actual fact, he died so that we didn't pay the, owe the debt. Someone once said, if we live with the understanding that we are indebted to God, then the cross was not a gift, it was a bargain. Which nullifies and reduces the power of the cross and the power that we have in Christ Jesus, in the, in, in the empowering of the grace of the Holy Spirit to, to live out how he's called us to live. But too many of us understand we're saved by grace, but then we try and live our lives as if we're indebted to God because something in us says, yes, we are. Because without him we can do nothing, but actually he's paid the debt. Because if you live with that understanding of I'm indebted to him, I'm indebted to God, I'm doing this because I owe you, God, I do this because I owe you, because you, you died for me, therefore I do this, because we're just going straight back under it. See what I'm trying to say? The grace of God sets us free, and then we should be those who live with joy and expectation and faith and authority and power. Just think of the parable that Jesus told of the prodigal son. So most of us would know this parable. The guy had two sons. And I know we use this to preach about uh, salvation. But can I just throw this thought? The guy had two sons. They were already his sons. They already had an inheritance. They were already in his household. And if the father represents God, that represents us. Not so? The one son carried on like a good boy, did everything he should, worked at home, but didn't understand that everything was his because he was there. The other son decided he was going to walk away from his dad. He took his inheritance as if his father was dead and spent it on anything that he wanted to do. He, did, he sinned de- deliberately, incredibly, with all sorts of ways you could ever think. It says that he went off and spent his money in a foreign land and, and everything else. And then, every, then he came to his senses. And, and that's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. So he, he, he walked and he sinned and he did what he wanted and rejected what the father had said. And instead of living in the fullness and the abundance of what the father had in his household to, to celebrate and do, because we see that that's what he could have done, he, he took it away and rejected and sinned and did all of those things. And he came to the end of himself and found himself in a pigsty feeding the pigs and everything else, trying to eat them. And he comes to the realization that actually even a servant in his father's house is better. And so he'd come back. And at that point, that, in, in, this, in, in the analogy, that point shows Humility. He's been humbled. He decides he needs to go back and uh, repent. And he comes back to the Father from that point of, 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 of conviction and repentance and humility. And the end of the end, he comes back to the Father with this idea that he's not worthy to be a son. He, he just wants to be a servant. And, so, and, and what is the picture of the Father? Who is God? He's waiting for him to come. He's been waiting for him to return. The father didn't go out and fetch him because the son had run away. So sometimes we can sin and and it breaks the intimacy with God. And God waits for us to return back to him, to humble ourselves and come back to him. But the father's waiting for him. And as he sees that there's been a repentance and a confession and a coming back, he runs out to meet him. And, he, and, and see, the son comes back thinking, that's it, I've blown it. I've, I, I, my inheritance is gone. I'm, I've spent it all. There's nothing for me. There's no future except as a slave because I know even as a slave in his house, it's better than where I am at the moment. That when he comes back, the father sees him and runs to him. And he doesn't listen to the fact that I'm only 
only worthy to be a slave. He embraces him. He gives him a, the, the, the first coat, which is that of, 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 of the most significant coat in the family. And he gives him a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet. And he, basically what he's saying is he's embracing him back. And he says to his brother later on, the, the, his other son, that your, your brother who was dead has come back and he's alive again. And what happens is the father is giving him authority. He's giving him a future. He's giving him a destiny. He's giving him a purpose. He's giving him inheritance all over again. Why? Not because of what the son has done or hasn't done, but because of who the father is. And you see, we are the same. We are children of God, washed by the blood of Jesus, in living in the grace of God. And when we mess up, it's the Holy Spirit that convicts and turns us, convicts us of sin, that we are humble, we repent, we come back to the Father, and it is restored doesn't mean that we lose our salvation it means that we've lost intimacy and the father's waiting for us to be humble and come back in repentance to him and he will embrace and there's still a future this and that's the incredible grace of God and that grace of God enables us to say no to ungodliness so when we understand that why wouldn't you do you do you think that that son would then turn around we don't know what goes on we do turn around and do the whole thing again I doubt it. Why? Because he's overwhelmed by the grace of the Father who loves and accepts him for who he is. And the same is true for you and I. We live and we are saved by the grace of God, but we are also empowered to live by the grace of God. The grace of God working through Jesus to bring salvation is the grace of God working through the Holy Spirit to empower us. Why do you think Jesus said, wait in Jerusalem until you receive the Holy Spirit? It's because we can do nothing in our own. I said that last week. There's nothing that we can do to change ourselves. Just like there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. But we come to Jesus for salvation. We come to Jesus and through Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit to live a godly life empowered by him. And that's why actually in the middle of this whole book of Paul saying to Timothy to do all of these things and teach all of these things so that we will know how to live, it has to be grounded and rooted and started on the foundation of the grace of God and understanding that it is by grace we are saved and it is by grace we live. It's by grace that we are saved and it's by grace that we find our strength empowered by him, strengthened by him uh, um, in all those things that we've seen. Paul, when he's speaking in 2 Corinthians, he speaks about the thorn on his side and we're not going to go into all of what that is, but how God answers him is this. My grace is sufficient for you. My strength, my power is made perfect in weakness. If we humbly come and live before God, allowing the Holy Spirit to work in us and through us, no matter what we face, God gives us the strength. The same heart of God that was inclined to save us by His grace is the same heart of God that who is inclined to help us by His grace. And empower us by his grace. And so if we think that that grace just means we can then do what we want, we've not actually understood what grace is. Because grace gives us freedom to live in God, accepted, loved, not based on who we are. But it's that same grace that empowers us to live a godly life. To say no to ungodliness. To to live and enjoy and celebration of the things of God. So we don't actually have to prove we are his We are His.
because we didn't have to earn our salvation. We got it from Jesus. And so actually, believers should be the happiest, most joyful, most passionate, most hope-filled people in the world. Why? Because if you haven't received Jesus, then one day when you stand before God and everybody will stand before God, if someone hasn't received Jesus, there's no sacrificial for God to look on. He looks straight on them. And you will be judged by your inability to pay the price for your sin and face the eternal consequences and punishment for that. But if we are believers, then he doesn't look at us, he looks at the sacrifice. The Son of God that was paid for us so that we no longer face the wrath of God or the punishment of God. This, there's discipline and there's a big difference between those two. Because we're covered by the blood of Jesus. Because he looks at the sacrifice. That's for then. And that's why he says and we wait for this future glory, this future hope of the coming of Jesus so that one day this will be made in its fullness. Yet while we live our lives today, tomorrow, as you go out to work, know this, that's the same grace that worked through Jesus to save you, the same grace that works through the Holy Spirit to empower you to live a godly life. It's not trying hard, trying hard, trying hard. It's not saying that we don't give ourselves to those things. It's, and it's, it's also not saying, well, that's it, I'll just do what I want in the grace of God. No, that's not it either. It's understanding that you, you live putting these things into place that we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks as we go through Titus. And, and we impart to others and that we live in that place able to do it not in our own strength but His power is made perfect in our weakness. In our humility we come before Him and say, God, I can't do this. I need Your grace. God, I can't do this. I need Your grace. God, these relationships that are a mess, I can't fix them. God, I need your grace. This place I keep on tripping up, God, I need your grace. You see, if we think, actually, if we haven't got the right understanding, when we do something wrong, we then tend to run away from God and think, well, I need to do this and this and this to make myself acceptable because I know Jesus paid the price, but now I messed up since then. And that's not it. That's thinking like that son. Who thought, well, let me go and apologize and repent and then I'm not worthy and I'll be a servant and I'll just do this. And how many of us live in that place? And God the Father is just waiting for us to be humble and come. And he says he gives grace to the humble. But if we think, oh, I can do this. I've got this covered. I can handle it. Then we're not living in the grace of God. We're actually living in our self-righteousness and our self obsessed abilities which is pride and God opposes the proud but he gives grace and draws near to those who are humble we are undeserved the undeserved favor and love and help and power of God is for each of us not because he has to but because he wants to because he he wants that for us and he knows who we are and he's created everything for our, our good and remember last week when we looked at the potter and the clay and he reworked the clay so that the marred bits were no longer visible. That's a picture of the Father. When we come to him with humble repentance, his grace again lavished out. His grace again. And his grace 
to empower, His grace to strengthen. So when we feel like we're failing, we don't try harder. We ask for grace. We humble ourselves, repent and ask for grace. And His grace strengthens and His grace empowers. Saved through Jesus, His grace operating. Empowered through the Holy Spirit, His grace operating. That's where we live. And so as we look at this book of Titus, and there's some... Uh, it's a short book but there's so much in there but we need to know this as children of God you are loved, accepted and he, he inspects the lamb who is the perfect sacrifice which has covered forever your sin and debt and as his children when we come to him we can boldly approach the throne of grace not in our confidence on ourselves but in confidence that when he sees us he's going to see the sacrifice Jesus has prayed and then accept us that's an incredible truth that I think we can even comprehend the enormity of it that when he sees us and loves us and wants us to be intimate with him when he views us as believers he doesn't view us with our sin he views Jesus and accepts us, his children, and empowers us to live in that place. Today, the rest of our lives, as we look through this book, please remember that. That is by grace you are saved. It is by grace we have been empowered to live. Not by our own strength, but by everything he's done. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the incredible, incredible truth that it is through you, Jesus, your sacrifice on the cross on our behalf, the Lamb of God, that through you we can live forgiven, set free, whole because of your grace, because of your mercy that there's nothing that we have to do to prove we are worthy. We just accept you, Jesus, and the gift you've given. God, that blows our minds. But Lord, I pray that we would not only understand what it means to be saved by grace, but we would understand what it means to be empowered to live by grace. That in our daily lives, it wouldn't be a striving of obedience in order to gain merit or favor but it would be a a life of obedience out of joy because we know it's the best that you have for us and in that we can live in the freedom of who you've called and created us to be God I pray that if any of us battle with that issue of being acceptable to you when we are your children Father I pray that by your spirit that you would pour out grace upon grace upon grace, that there would be an understanding of who we are in you and a freedom and a joy and a hope that comes from that. And Father, I pray if there's any here this morning who do not know you, that you would draw them to yourself, reveal yourself to them, and Lord, I pray that they would turn. And surrender to you. And if that's you this morning, won't you come and see me afterwards? I'd love to pray with you. But Lord, I thank you that for every single one, 
we have access to the Father through the Son, by faith, by, through faith by grace. And we live in that place, empowered by you. Help us, Lord. And when we fall, by grace you pick us up and carry us on. That we constantly have a hope and a future when we live and walk humbly before you. And Lord, I ask that each one of us would be so gripped by that that we would not be able to keep it silent. But that good news we would be preaching and living to those around us. That there be a revelation of the freedom, the joy, and the grace, and the hope that we have in you that is evident to those that we work with, we live with, family members, people we come into contact with. Lord, that that overwhelming joy of knowing you would be something that is uncontainable in our relationships with others. That, Lord, that those who don't know you would come to salvation so that they wouldn't have to stand and face you on their own but they too would know what it means to be covered by the blood of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.